0: Hello, and welcome to the Fisher Poetry Podcast, a showcase of prose, poetry, and song written and performed by those in the commercial fishing community, mostly. I'm your host, Brad. Thanks for joining us today. Today's episode is from the 2023 Fisher Poetry Gathering in Astoria, Oregon. You'll be hearing from Fisher Poets Jan Bono of Long Beach, Washington, and Jefferson Holland of Annapolis, Maryland with introduction by mc joel miller this set was recorded at the 1015 theater on saturday february 25th 2023 so without further ado here's the show
1: good evening good evening hello welcome uh first of all thank you 1015 for for hosting um, I just got to meet the ownership here, um, what a great space, really glad to, uh, to, to get to uh, MC here and then later play. Uh, so uh, my first time emceeing, uh, it's about my seventh Fisher Poets, um, I've met Brad years ago here uh, in Astoria and we've connected a couple times since, uh, so it's always really great to see familiar faces and uh, wonderful to meet new. I always meet more new than I do see old, uh, because it's just such an expanding group of uh, folks either visiting or participating. So, um, thank you, thank you so much. Um, we're gonna get it started, here first set. Um, there may be one or two people missing because of weather-related travel issues and things, so we'll just kind of take it as it goes and fill it in. Um, but to start here this evening, is Jan Bono, Long Beach, Washington. Let's give her a hand.
2: Thank you. Yes, if you want to uh, have a floor show too, just have me try and get up those stairs without having a cane or a help. You know, this is great. I can't see anybody here, so I'm speaking to an audience of none. That is really, you know, make a noise or something. I'm good. Thank you. I am Jan Bono. I am from Long Beach, Washington. I've been over there for 45 years. A long time. And I have never commercial fished. That's my disclaimer. Okay, but my claimer is that my grandfather, on my dad's side, was a commercial fisherman on the Mississippi River back in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And none of his eight kids followed him onto the river, the old man in the sea. But he uh, inspired us all to have a love of fishing. And my father sport fished, still does, he's 90s something four or five. And, uh, and I was his fishing buddy from the time I was two until I was in my 20s and took off for college. And he taught me the love of being out there just holding a pole waiting for something to bite the line. And he tied a rope around my waist when I was two and tied the other end to the oarlocks because he said he wasn't sure if I could float. <laughs> that was before we had you know little uh, life preservers for kids too. I mean I'm not gonna tell you how old I am but it's old. So, um, And then uh, when I moved down to Long Beach Washington I um, started a teaching career down there and I married drum roll, please, a commercial fisherman. <laughs> so, um, I refer to that now as my practice marriage. Um, <laughs> I'm still waiting for the real thing, but, you know, that was, that was the warm-up thing. So, I am your warm-up act for tonight, and, <laughs> and I will begin now by honoring the uh, family I came from with a poem that's called, It Runs in the Family. And, unlike some people, I have to take my glasses off to read. I know, there's other things that are backwards about me too, but that's the big one. I never met my grandfather on my father's side. My dad was only 16 when his old man died. But I've heard many tales of the risks he took on the Mississippi River while out setting a hook. My father's father was a fisherman by trade, working hard to earn every single dollar that he made. Gramp spent nearly all his life out there on the river, glad the fish buyers met the boat when he delivered. He caught German carp and drum and pike, but the tasty yellow catfish was what they'd really like. Yellow catfish paid a needed five cents a pound more and helped him keep the wolf away from their door. The boys helped out in summer when the hot sun shined. They set hoop hoop nets from the boat and managed the jump lines. Each line had 50 hooks and they were 10 feet apart. Pulling them in took muscles and a great amount of heart. One day the boys were fishing just standing on the shore when a catfish took their line, pulled hard and wanted more. They wrestled that fish in, though we put up quite a fight. It was the biggest catfish ever. Oh, it was quite a sight. They stuck a heavy tree branch right through the monster's gills hoisted up on their shoulders, and carried it on the hill. They used a cotton scale to weigh it, so no exaggerating, guessing while the weights were balanced, just anticipating. 39 pounds of catfish, the scale proclaimed. That catfish is huge, all the neighbors exclaimed. They got their picture taken, though cameras were rare. Doc on the left, Frank on the right, the credit did they share. Not one of eight kids followed that old man to the sea. But my father loved to sport fish, and he passed that on to me. And when I eat fried catfish with Creole mayonnaise, I'm grateful for my heritage and father's good old days." (laughs) And in case you think that's a fish tail, there's a picture here. This one is called The Smell of Money, and it's kind of self-explanatory. I looked forward to his returning and cooked his favorite meal, but one whiff of him as he crossed the lawn made my head begin to reel. I ran inside and locked him out and peered through the window glass. What the hell, he bellowed? Open up and let me pass. He was covered in scales and gooey slime and all kinds of stinky stuff, so I told him just to wait outside because I'd already smelled enough. Just what am I supposed to do? I can't strip naked while out here. Oh, yes, you can, I hollered back. I've put up with this for years. I placed a beer out on the porch and a stack of fresh, clean clothes, but what I really wanted to do was spray him down with the hose. If you're gonna make a scene, he said, make a scene when you see my check. We'll be able to take that vacation you wanted and rebuild the crumbling deck. He almost had me giving in and unlocking the kitchen back door but I didn't want his boots to track across my kitchen floor. His face was turning purple and I feared the look in his eyes as I knew I'd have to find a way we'd make a compromise. How about you shed just your boots and cap and your jacket and shirt and jeans. I'll let you keep your skivvies on and your socks if they're still clean. Nothing doing, he said right away. I'd be a laughingstock. I'm not undressing just to give the neighbors something to mock. We glared at each other in silence, not willing to give an inch, until the buzzer on the oven made me the first to to flinch. I had to rescue dinner before it was all burned. You can't ignore the timer was a lesson I'd already learned. But as soon as I had left my post, I heard the doors swing free. Hadn't taken him very long to find my hidden key. He paraded through the kitchen, dropping clothes over here and over there, so when he got to the shower, he was down to his underwear. ''You bastard!'' I shouted after him. ''You don't fight fair at all!'' I should have saved my breath. I was just talking to the wall. But then I happened to notice what else he'd dropped, that filthy pig. But I had to squint my eyes real small, because the numbers were so big. Well, maybe just this one more time, I'd give his smelly clothes, forgive his smelly clothes, and learn to do the laundry with a clothespin on my nose. For the check I held was hefty and would get us even on the rent. And on all the other bills, I knew this would make one hell of a dent. So I went back into the kitchen and poured two glasses of wine so we could toast his safe return, though he still smelled less than fine. Well, all my poems are true stories. And the next two are a little... Um, more somber than that last one. Um, This one was a man who was uh, the owner of the boat my husband fished on, but he was out on another boat checking it out when uh, they capsized. Their fishing boat had capsized in towering 20-foot seas. The five-foot life raft tossed about on a vicious, freezing breeze. Two men had made it to the raft, but they couldn't reach two more crew. Another was stranded below the deck, and there was nothing they could do. There had been no time to don the suits, which would have helped them stay afloat. The trawler rolled fast, and then it sank. No distress signal from the boat. The waves increased to 40 feet. No point in trying to use the oars. They were headed north on the current along the Washington shore. After 40 hours at the ocean swim, the raft drifted close to the beach. They could see the lights of cabins that the men thought they might be able to reach. They heard the waves break on the beach, a quarter mile at best. They could sense their time was now, and this would put them to the test. Tumbled over and over in the surf, three quarters drowned in mouthful of sand, one of them made it to the shore and crawled out on the land. Two men had struggled in the dark, but only one emerged alone, somehow broke into a summer place where he used their telephone. You've made it this far, the dispatcher said, and I know that you are weak, but flash the inside house lights for the ambulance to seek. His rescuers drove up the beach where his family had often played. He thought of his wife and children kept, from being, kept him from being so afraid. When they'd left the port together, the crew had numbered five, but the fickle ocean mistress let only one come home alive. I was hoping that was as close as disaster would get to us, but it also took his brother-in-law, and this is dedicated and is about him, called God Bless the Captain. They say the day was rather calm when the golden venture went down. Three of the four on board, excuse me, three of the four who'd been on board were in the life raft that was found. The fishing vessel that picked them up was called the Hazel Lorraine back then, The distress call came from the captain, who thought only of his men. The trawler was simply making a turn like hundreds of times before. Her net was down when she came around, but disaster was in store. She went down near Yanoska Island in the Aleutian Island chain. Three men were saved, but one was lost, and his name was Rodney Main. We know he died a noble death, but what about his wife? How hard it must have been for her to carry on with life. But men who fish for a living can't stay on land for long. The sea will always call them with a beautiful siren song. God bless the fishing vessels wherever they may roam. And God, please do the best you can to bring them all safely home. Okay, back to the levity. A bathtub of Chinook. I'd been married several years to a midwater dragger deckhand. Brown rock cod became a staple, fried, grilled, poached, or canned. He considered me a city girl when I became his wife, and he figured I didn't know how to use a fish filleting knife. So I sat back and let him think I couldn't clean no fishes. But nevertheless, I cooked his meal and made his favorite dishes. And when he wasn't out on the ocean, he sometimes fished for fun. And I might even go with him when there was a salmon run. At dawn, one day, we struck it rich, quickly claiming our limit of Chinooks. Of course, I played the girl card and made him take out all the hooks. When we got home, he'd had a call and had to leave right away for the dock. So he threw our fish in the bathtub where he would said he'd clean them later. What a crock. Now, I wanted to shower something fierce, fierce, but the fish were in my way, and I couldn't picture sharing the slime-filled tub with them that day. So I hauled them out, one by one, and gutted and cleaned and sliced, then packaged them up for the freezer and lined them all up in rows so nice. He got home late and cursed the fact we'd ever caught those fish. He said he'd hoped they'd disappeared. It would be his greatest wish. So I told him his wish was granted that I'd given all the fish away to our neighbors down the street, really made their day. He hurried to the bathroom, saw the tub with no Chinook. I wished I'd had a camera to record his horrified look. He fumed and he fussed and he stomped around, called me a lousy whore. So I held my hand to stop him before he could say any more. Out to the garage, I led him, opened the freezer door wide to see those salmon roasts and steaks all lined up there inside. He asked me who had done that. Who had come and done this chore? I confess that I'd been cleaning fish since I was only four. He assumed I couldn't butcher fish, that I was just a pretty face. I guess he now learned his, who assumes, and I'd put him in his place. But my story is a sad one, and it ends not quite so well, as from then on I was left to clean every fish from heaven or hell. <laughs>
1: I'm gonna give a little bio here. Next person is Jefferson Holland, Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, I'm gonna tell you about Jefferson. Jefferson Holland is the poet laureate at Eastport, the Waterman's maritime neighborhood across the harbor from Annapolis proper. A modern day Chesapeake troubadour, a singer, songwriter, poet, storyteller, Jeff performs all original material inspired by decades of life on the bay. Jeff is the editor of the Chesapeake Bay Magazine and writes an outdoor column in the Annapolis capital. He lives in Annapolis with his emotional support spouse, Lewis White, and their rescue retriever, Millie. Welcome Jefferson. Thank
3: you. Absolutely. Oh, what a thrill to be here. Uh, This is... uh we're going to be uh, doing some stuff from this uh, chap book, and it's available at the gearbox So uh, Eastport is, again, a little neighborhood across the harbor from Annapolis proper. It's uh, the traditional home of both black and white watermen uh, working out in the water or working in places like the McNasty Oyster Company building, where uh, that eventually became a museum that I was the founding But there, uh, the, the McBaskin Company building is on Back Creek, and that's where everybody in the neighborhood goes in the summertime to go chicken neck. Chicken neck. <laughs> if you've never been chicken necking, that's where you take a chicken neck and you tie a string around it, and you lower it down over the pier into the water, you wait for a nice chesty big blue crab to come along and latch on and then you scoop it up with a long pole net. So this is a song about crabbing on Back feet, and curiously enough, it's called Back And the progress has been made on restoring it to its original health. A lot of- Hide from the predators, maybe crabs and fish. Also, oxygenate the water, clean the water by all kinds of good things. And uh, a lot of work we've done to try to restore the beds, the seagrasses. Uh, these these are grasses that the, the environmentalists call submerged aquatic vegetation. <laughs> Seaweed. music there. <laughs> and what kind of music would it be but, but, let go! The baby boomer generation has fostered over So if you sail into the harbor on the 21st of March, and you smell a makes it is snow, snow like lean mixed in with laundry starch. You know you're down then the Eastport docks where they're burning their socks for the Epinox. <laughs> so uh, there are lots of legends. And one of them is of a sea It's not messy, it's Chessie. Let me tell you the story of me, Captain Dan. That oysterback son of an old water man. One day. Shabbat Maryland. Oh, Maryland. How am I- So there was a legendary man from the town of Deal with a heart of gold and guts of steel. To eat a lot of oysters was his only aim. They called him Muskrat, Muskrat Green. As a little bitty babe, he weighed just two pounds, but he grew to be the biggest water man around. At five foot six, he weighed 235, with a belly twice as big as any man man's size. Uh, he was a hard-eating In an oyster-eating contest, nobody could beat him. He said, "They can't shuck them fast as I can eat them." He won every eating contest on the whole East Coast. He could chug a quart of raw ones like a cocktail toast, at downing three hundred in a minute five seconds. He said, "Well, it's time for lunch, I reckon." (laughs) Well, they sent him off to London town, the one near Wales, and this time what he had to eat was snails. Tastes like rubber is all he had to say, but he ate a record number of them anyway. He beat the best eater that the Brits could show down in 2.2 pounds of S-card go. He did it in two minutes and 43 seconds, and that got him in the Guinness Football World Records. And back in deal, they say Muskrat. Put that tiny tiewater town on the map. They made him the honorary mayor of the town and they put him in the limo and they drove him over. And now he's up in heaven with all them harp pluckers, searching for the former world's fastest oyster shucker. He was the greatest oyster eater that the world has ever seen. He was Muskrat. Muskrat. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very true story, actually. So, uh, So I'm going to leave you with a poem about something that really almost sort of happened. Uh, there was a, a pirate named Richard Clark who, in 1702, threatened to attack the city of Annapolis. And uh, I wanted to commemorate this in a poem, but I couldn't figure out a way to make Dick Clark sound threatening, so I changed that to Well, you might have heard the old men speak of the time pirates scavenge the Chesapeake. Here's the tale of one pirate, a bold pickaroon, who scoured the bay in the dark of the moon, swept down on his prey like an eastern typhoon, his cannons ablaze with a flash and a boom. Captain the Bloom was a scalawag's name. And you don't want to hear how he won his ill fame. He ate hot pickled peppers in porcupine chowder, seasoned with sulfur and wonder powder, while in a goblin. For the heat from the peppers had to suffice, for his veins carried nothing but water and ice. This cold-blooded creature he happened to be, with no trace of mercy or charity. He kept for his ship, made the crew walk the plank, and he'd never say, please, you're welcome, or thanks. <laughs> <laughs> One night as the captain boy opened the door of the captain's cabin, he saw there hunched over a chart, Over the blue, his wicked sidekick, their fierce faces lit by the sputtering whip of a whale. I'm from a low beam that swung as they plotted, inspired in steam. The cabin boy, Fitzhugh's boy, was known as Bonnie Hugh. When he swamped in with the captain's body, he overheard the two conspiring to attack the town, wreak havoc in the streets, and steal any ships that were tied to the slits to build their pirate fleet. One who cried when he the spider jump, felt a chill with me in his neck, for the town they had picked was a novelist the spot from the Blackhats. And now the one They're going to attack it. They're going to burn it to the ground, and then they're going to sack it while he, he'd swim ashore to warn the town. But that would cause disaster. For Hugh McCoy was a servant boy who had run away from his master. And runaway servants in those long-ago days were treated no better if they were slaves. If he showed up in his master's house, they'd beat him with a chain. They'd lock him into pillar stocks and shackle him in the chains. So, swimming a chore to warn the town of the pick intent, would only get poor body in deeper trouble yet. Through a piece of shit, hoping to trickle a good idea too. when the sun went down, and the moon came around, and Annapolis came to view. My god, the pirate cried, prepare! He stumbled into the galley where the cook prepared a snack, for his messmates were up on deck preparing to attack him. He stirred hot pickled peppers into porcupine and chowder, seasoned it with sulfur and blunderbuss powder. He swapped it in goblets all greasy and brown, and climbed. I shoot that Each swirling blob of pirate's blood twirling the tide became a stinging jellyfish, they say, or perhaps they lied. But if you take a summer swim out on the Chesapeake, and you suddenly emit around a rather noisy pirate shriek, you'll have felt the jellyfish's sting, the fierce seal's wound. That's the sting of the little pepper, and the blood of the bold room. <laughs>
1: Excellent, excellent. Thanks, Jan. Thank you guys so much. Uh, thank you for being great uh, audience, too. It's always great to, to allow these guys to focus, not have a lot of noise in the background. I can tell you guys are really into this, which is really great. We're going to take a quick break, start in about 10 minutes. We're just a couple minutes behind, but we'll catch up very easily tonight because I think there's a couple of holes in the schedule along the way. So relax, get whatever you need. We'll be uh, starting in here about 10.
0: That was Fisher Poets Jan Bono and Jefferson Holland, recorded at the 1015 Theater in Astoria, Oregon on Saturday, February 25th, 2023. Well, that's it. This one's in the tote. The Fisher Poetry Podcast is written and produced by Brad Wortman. The theme music for this episode is courtesy of Mark Allen Lovewell and Molly Canole. If you'd like to appear on or have comments about the show, please send an email to Archive at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to haul the latest episodes into your net. The Fisher Poetry Podcast is available via our podcast host, Spotify, as well as Apple, Google, and Amazon. You can listen to our other podcast episodes, watch our YouTube videos, and join our community by going to thefisherpoetryarchive.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Come,
3: all young sailormen, listen to me. I'll sing you a song of the fish in the sea. Blow your winds westerly, westerly blow. We're bound to the southern, so steady she goes.